Hi, Tim Bennett here from this past team at BTL. And today we're talking about the fourth industrial revolution. Now this year at the conference in Newcastle, this past 19 conference, we were delighted to be joined by Ollie Newton from the Edge Foundation. Ollie talked to us about the fourth industrial revolution and its influence it was going to have on assessment going forward and employability and skills. It was great to have Ollie kick off our conference. It really did help us set the scene for some really engaging and rich conversation that took place over the two days there. So let's hear from Ollie and what he has to say about the fourth industrial revolution and the impact on assessment. Over to you, Ollie. Good morning, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so just to start off, um, I'm, as, a, as you say, I'm a kind of uh, self-starter, so uh, a bit about me. So um, I spent the first 12 years of my career um, in the Department for Education, uh, making education policy, no booing or hissing, please. Um, so I worked on academies and apprenticeships, uh, and then I moved across a few years ago to the Edge Foundation, which is a fantastic little education charity. Some of you may have heard of it, uh, based here in the UK, working across the UK and increasingly internationally as well. Um, we really exist to try and help uh, improve the way that people are prepared for the 21st century. Um, so we look at pedagogy, we look at the way people are, are being taught in schools and colleges and universities, and therefore assessment is a really, really important part of that as well. Um, so what I wanted to do today was just start off your really exciting couple of days uh, with some uh, thoughts to help you kind of uh, get into the right spirit. So what I wanted to talk about was, a, was, was really a bit about the labour market and how that's changing. So kind of what does Work 4.0 look like potentially? Um, what have I seen around the world in terms of different forms of teaching? Um, so uh, teaching 4.0. And then to leave you with some thoughts really to, to kind of uh, think about during your couple of days about what assessment 4.0 might look like uh, and really to drive you to think about how you can push the system rather than just be kind of uh, part, part of the end point of that kind of teaching. So what does the labour market look like at the moment? Lots of lovely numbers. We like those. So this is some data from the Department for Education's Employer Skills Survey back in 2017. Um, it shows some worrying stuff, basically. So skills shortage vacancies exist in the economy where um, an employer has a, a vacancy that they can't fill because they can't find the skills that they need. So there's been a massive growth in them. So from about 91,000 back in 2011 um, up to about 226,000 uh, in 2017, which is the latest data we've got. So there's a worrying trend in the, in the economy here and um, you know, sparked in other countries around the world as well, where employers are telling us that they can't find the skills they need to fill their vacancies. It was great to hear the team kind of expanding at the start and great that you guys have found uh, people that you need. But actually, as you well know, kind of technology and digital sector in particular is an area where uh, employee, employers are really struggling to find uh, the people they need for some skilled occupations. And that's really costing the economy quite quite dearly. So there's some really good research up on the board by um, uh, colleagues at the Open University. So they do business surveys uh, every year through their business barometer, looking at how much those skill shortages are costing businesses in the UK. Um, and they look at additional recruitment costs. They look at things like uh, time spent uh, with, with jobs kind of left unfilled, uh, having to pay more than the premium. Um, and they came up with this total of about £6.3 billion. So a real kind of a solid economic cost um, to all of that that we really need to kind of try and minimise. If you look at the cost of kind of GDP foregone, because we don't have the, the skills that we need to make the best use of those, the figures start to get into kind of 10, 10 times that amount and start to get pretty scary quite quickly. This is uh, one of my colleagues, Jane, from the British Chambers of Commerce. So 
um, a real worry about what's happening with this going forward as well. So you saw the scale of the increases in skills shortages in the economy over the last kind of six, seven years. Actually, all of the worries around, uh, I know I have to be the first to say it, Brexit, um, and also the kind of oncoming fourth industrial revolution that I'm going to talk a bit about in a moment, um, all of that's really worrying, particularly smaller businesses uh, around the future of this. So not only have we seen skills shortages grow, but I think there's a real worry that actually they could continue to grow um, if we're not careful. I think the really good thing, though, is there's some really quite solid data out there about what skills employers are looking for. And spoiler alert, sorry, Nick Gibb, for those of you who are from abroad, that's the, skills, the schools minister here. Um, the skills that employers are looking for are not necessarily rote learning for tests anymore. The skills that employers are looking for overwhelmingly um, at the top there, so around two-thirds say that uh, work experience and the skills gained from really strong work experience are kind of critical or essential when they're hiring. Um, just under half say that academic qualifications are critical or, or significant when they're hiring. Now, take that with a bit of a pinch of salt because most employers use those academic qualifications as a sift. Um, but really, I think the message for employers is clear. What they're looking for are some of those broader technical transferable skills rather than necessarily only those kind of qualifications at this point. So what's going to happen with kind of work 4.0 going forward? Well, as you probably know from your work, there's kind of two big schools of thought on this. Um, at the one hand, uh, there's a lot of people out there saying, you know, kids today, they're all going to be doing jobs that we've never heard of. They're going to be underwater noodle chefs and space judges, and we can't possibly conceive of the labor market. So there's kind of one extreme. On the other extreme, I guess there's a group that might be kind of more classes like the Millennium Bug. Do you remember that bit of a damp squib, the Millennium Bug? So everyone's kind of worrying about this, and actually it's all going to be fine. Nothing's really going to matter, and it's going to be changed. I'm somewhere in the middle of that, and I think it's, it's kind of important that we kind of try and find a way through that. So I think there will be quite a lot of change in the labour market, both whole jobs and also within jobs, which obviously you're experiencing already in the technology sector. Um, and I think uh, there's a really important and, and useful piece of work out there by our colleagues at the Royal Society of Arts uh, called The Four Futures of Work, which I'd really recommend to you. Um, and the point they make there is that actually we can't really just kind of um, work towards one predicted future. There's probably quite a range of scenarios, and they lay out four really good um, scenarios there. Um, so, you know, for your business, for your kind of uh, wider work, I would commend you to have a look at that and, and kind of see how well your business would, would fare in those four different um, scenarios. This is some work very recently by the Office for National Statistics, and what they did was look at about 20 million jobs within the UK and see which ones were most at risk of automation. So they came up with a figure of about 1.5 to 2 million jobs that are at high risk of automation, which I think is quite a reasonable figure, comparing it to kind of some of the other figures that we've seen uh, recently from the World Bank and elsewhere. Interestingly, though, um, the, there's a real kind of uh, shift or real kind of um, um, imbalance of where those jobs fall. So uh, those jobs that are most at risk of automation are predominantly held by women and predominantly held by younger people. So about 30 to 35 percent of the jobs held by 18 to 24-year-olds are at high risk of automation. So it kind of puts into perspective that actually uh, in those early stages, in the kind of school, college, university um, uh, spectrum, as young people are moving into their first few jobs in the labor market, those are the ones that are really at the most risk of automation. This is some work by colleagues at the World Economic Forum in Davos, uh, looking at some of the skills, therefore, that are likely to be in increasing or decreasing demand. So again, thinking about those kind of rote learning skills, you know, the memory, the verbal, the auditory are kind of in the declining group over the next few years in their thinking. Whereas things like critical thinking, problem solving, emotional intelligence, some of the areas that we've just heard are kind of being built into the assessment systems, uh, those are the ones that are likely to be in the ascendant over the next few years. I heard a really good um, uh, speech by, <coughs> excuse me, 
the head of education at the World Bank recently in Washington, and he was saying we've we've really uh, you know looking back we've really been very poor at predicting what's going to happen with the labour market and with skills. So you know we should really kind of take a, a weather look at whether we're going to get those predictions right. What we can be pretty sure of is that we're going to need lots more digital skills in the future. Uh, you know you guys know that very well because you work in technology. Um, but other than that, what we need to focus on is really those transferable skills. Young people, whether whichever end of the spectrum we end up on in terms of work 4.0, young people are going to be experiencing a lot of career changes, many more than, than kind of older generations. They're going to need a lot more of those transferable skills and that resilience. Um, and so I think that kind of gives us really a way in um, to think about what uh, skills 4.0 might look like. So we've done some work on this at the Edge Foundation. Again, you know, really happy to, to share that with you. My contact details are at the, at the end. So we did a meta-analysis of, of uh, around about 100 uh, reports looking at what employers were looking for in terms of skills across the, the, the world. Uh, and obviously, there are some common themes that come out there, and, and you will have, you'll know them from your business and from, from common sense as well. You know, communication, problem-solving, teamworking. These are the kinds of skills that come up again and again as things that businesses right across the kind of spectrum of the economy would look like. Um, this framework that I'm sharing with you here is actually one that we designed with colleagues in uh, Skills Development Scotland. So this is the, the, the system that they're using in Scotland to, uh, to look at kind of skills in apprenticeship, to, in technical education and more broadly. But I think the point I wanted to make was, you know, as we get into that world of work 4.0, as jobs change, as uh, young people are expected to move between roles more frequently, um, these are the kinds of skills that employers seem to be valuing. Um, not necessarily those kind of written exams, uh, not necessarily the kind of, uh, the, the kind of traditional skills, more these technical, more these transferable skills that seem to give a passport to a wide range of different careers. So what does that mean for teaching 4.0? Okay, well, I've spent the last couple of years really kind of working my way around the world, seeing some amazing examples of this. And I just wanted to share a couple of you, a couple with you um, uh, from the US and then a couple from the UK um, to really kind of see some interesting perspectives on where people are trying to develop and deliver those kinds of uh, broader transferable skills. The first one I wanted to share with you is from Nashville. Um, so in Nashville, about 12 years ago, uh, the high school system was really failing. They had one of the lowest high school graduation rates in the States, uh, and they were about to be taken over by the state of Tennessee. So the businesses in that area came together with, uh, with the educators uh, and developed uh, together what they wanted to change their high school system into. So they, they changed the system, they changed almost everything really in the high schools, um, and young people who are in those high schools now uh, take part in what they call a career academy. And that career academy links their learning to a particular sector of the economy that's growing. Um, let's take healthcare as an example. Healthcare is a massive booming industry in Nashville, um, partly because uh, older Americans uh, fly into Nashville, have a hip operation, go to the Grand Old Opry for an amazing night of country music, and then fly home. It's like a beautiful healthcare tourism destination. We don't really have the same thing in the UK, but anyway, it's a, it's a boom market there, and they wanted to take advantage of it. So the, the career academies in health sciences uh, are now kind of uh, out in the high schools, and young people who are in those career academies are doing a broad curriculum, but they're doing it through the lens of that industry. So they're spending time with employers, they're having employers in the classroom alongside uh, teachers, teaching them their lessons, they're using real-life project examples from the healthcare industry to bring things to life uh, in their science classes, they're not just learning kind of about, I don't know, titration in the abstract, they're learning about titration of insulin uh, on a diabetic ward to bring it to life and to, and to really kind of set the context for that. And it's had some really remarkable results. So those young people are starting to really see their eyes light up because they can see the relevance of what they're doing. Um, one of our colleagues out there um, has a, a lovely kind of phrase that, uh, that I'll share with you. So she says, you know, kids only put up their hands in high school for two reasons. First reason, can I go to the bathroom? Second reason, when am I ever going to need to use this? And if you can't answer the second question, then you might as well just stop that lesson because there's no point in the teacher or the young person being there. 
So what they're trying to do is really give that relevance to ensure that those young people know why they're going to use it, uh, where it's relevant, and that that's what kind of uh, really kind of switches them on. The results have been really impressive. Um, as with any good statistical series, they changed the way they measured it in the middle, so apologies that there's a break, um, but they made it harder. Essentially, this was about graduating uh, in five years, and then it's squeezed down to four years. So graduation rates have increased from about 57% up to about 83 or 4% uh, this year, actually. So it's been a really remarkable improvement. Um, alongside that, they've seen really strong improvements in core subjects, so not just the kind of vocational ones, but also in their English and maths, because young people are seeing those uh, as more relevant and, and kind of putting more effort into them. Uh, and overall, they think that it's adding about $100 million to the economy in the city of Nashville every year because more people are graduating. So just to share a few other examples from the states first. So the work in Nashville is now being developed by a partner charity of ours in the states, Ford Next Generation Learning. So they're now working with 40 different school communities trying to embed those similar kinds of models. A different model, but with similar characteristics, the PTEC model, um, developed in the States now, being rolled out into North Africa and, uh, and into uh, Australia as well. So these are small, uh, kind of specific schools that are linked to a particular business and industry. So IBM uh, run the one in Brooklyn that I visited. Um, and these are kind of similar in the sense that they kind of link things to a profession, but they're really closely linked to the needs of that particular employer. So IBM uh, supports every young person there to go through either a hardware or a software route. Those young people are spending time uh, in, their, um, in their business as interns, doing work experience, and everyone gets a guaranteed job interview at the end of that. So it's really kind of taking that high school concept, but really linking it very closely to employment, uh, instilling cultural values in that company, and starting to develop the kind of workforce of the future. Um, High Tech High over in San Diego, uh, a really great example of, a, of a, a, again, a very different kind of learning. So it's really the champion of, uh, of the, the mode of learning called project-based learning, so kind of integrating different subjects, making sure that young people are working together in teams. Yes, they're learning that kind of core curriculum, but they're doing it in a way that develops that, those team-working skills, those problem-solving skills that we saw are so important to, to employers. And it's starting to take off here as well. So just a couple of quick examples from, from, the, from over here in the UK. Um, school 21 in Stratford down in East London, uh, one of our partner schools, you know, really forward-thinking free school. Um, they uh, do a lot with project-based learning, so developing that kind of model similar to High Tech High, but they have a really cool program of real-world learning. So they uh, put the funding and the curriculum time that they would have used for their ninth GCSE into employer engagement, and they have two or three professionals who work in the school as non-teaching staff just engaging with businesses. And then they send all of their year 10s and all of their year 12s um, out, uh, out of the school for half a day every week, uh, delivering real projects in real businesses. So we had a group of kids uh, in EDGE writing our kind of communication strategy with young people, because they know how to do that, and I don't. Um, uh, another group went into a local hotel. They redesigned their whole children's menu. So the hotel got a really good outcome, but they spent time with the chef. Uh, they spent time understanding the prices of ingredients. They went to the design company that they used. They helped to design the menu. So great stuff for their CV, great stuff for their kind of personal development. Um, XP, um, uh, up in Doncaster, just near where I live, um, is one of the first expeditionary learning schools in, in the UK. Um, so this is a school unlike uh, any other you would have seen, and I would commend kind of, uh, you to go and have a visit of it, uh, because it's, a, it's got a very different feel. So it's a small school, 300 students, because they wanted to make sure that everyone knew everyone else. Um, it uses pure, kind of a pure project-based learning methodology, so no subjects are taught discreetly. Everything is taught through STEAM or humanities projects. Teachers teach in teams. Um, and they really kind of uh, support that development of those kind of wider skills. It's all about creativity, uh, developing, being smart, and being kind. So a very different kind of teaching methodology uh, in order to try and get to those skills. So um, uh, I think there's some interesting stuff there that's going to be rolled out more broadly. 
Just a touch on our role in that. So we've been kind of disseminating and, and gathering all of those messages. We've got a beautiful network now of all of those kind of different projects and, and approaches. Uh, and we're supporting a, a range of schools here in the UK um, and internationally to start to think about developing that methodology in their schools. So we're currently working with seven schools and colleges up in the northeast of England. Uh, and we've developed a little model, which I won't run through in detail, but you can come and grab me at coffee if you'd like to know more, um, which tries to summarize some of the key ingredients from all of those. So to try and kind of make it a bit more accessible for schools that might be uh, kind of wanting to go down that route. So, last but not least, what does that mean for you guys and for assessment? So, I wanted to share with you a little anecdote from last time I was over in the States. So, um, I was at a school called Envision, which is in Oakland, um, and they've really changed up the way that they run assessment in the school. So, what they do now, they have some kind of standard tests, but uh, the key thing that those young people are working towards every year, and in particular in their final year, um, is a presentation of learning, which they do to, a, to an authentic audience. So they do it to a range of their peers, their parents are there, a panel of teachers, and then at least one person from their local community, you know, an employer or a community leader. They are charged with presenting uh, three artifacts, so three key pieces of work that they've developed during that year, um, and they can be from any different subject. They have to draw out the, the kind of key skills and lessons they've learned from that, and they have to show how they've applied the lessons they've learned from that piece of work into something else, whether that's a different subject in the school or something outside. And then they have to finish with, um, with a kind of presentation about what that means for them in terms of where they're going next and their kind of career ambitions. So sitting there and listening to this young woman talk about how she developed in her English class some really impressive kind of textual analytical skills and the ability to kind of write persuasively. And then she'd taken that out into some charity work that she did, uh, trying to kind of uh, raise aspirations amongst the Latina women's community that she lives in. You know, that was a perfect example of that. That kind of ticked all the boxes in, the, in their assessment matrix because she was uh, grab, grabbing that kind of artifact, showing how they developed the skills, and then showing how, how she transferred those into a different setting and, and used them. I share that with you for two reasons. One is I think it's an interesting example of a kind of different kind of assessment. But the second is that what they told me was that that was the first thing that they changed about their school. They changed that assessment methodology, uh, and they felt the ripples of that through everything else that they did. So although we've talked about um, kind of work 4.0, teaching 4.0, and then assessment 4.0, actually you guys have got an amazing opportunity because if you change and adapt the way that assessment works, the education system is so fixed on what it measures and that being the kind of key endpoint, that actually if you can change that endpoint and find innovative ways to do that, you will be causing ripple effects back into everything else. So in that school, changing that assessment methodology was causing teachers to then think, oh, hang on, I'm not working towards a traditional exam here, I'm working towards that presentation, so I need to make sure that when I'm working with that young person, I'm helping them develop that, that, those, those kind of communication skills because they're going to be on stage at the end of this. Or I need to help them to develop this artifact in such a way that it really draws out the skills. And the kids got it, and the teachers got it, and so it kind of filtered back into everything that they did. So, yeah, I will leave it there just to say kind of I think you're, you, you have kind of uh, the education system in your hands in a lot of ways, uh, and the more innovative uh, you can be in all of your different phases and ways of being, uh, you'll have ripple ripple effects in a very positive way back through the curriculum and the way that people are taught. Thank you very much. Thank you, Wally, for that absolutely fantastic presentation. It really did kick off the two-day event and we had some fantastic discussions following that. Now, if you want to see Ollie's presentation in full, see Ollie on the stage, then if you go to conference.surpass.com or if you want more information about Surpass, go to btl.com slash surpass. And obviously, you can get hold of me at marketing at btl.com. I've been your host today, Tim Burnett. 
Thank you for listening and I hope to see you soon. All right, bye-bye.